Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. I am joined today by Amy Avery. Amy is a graphic designer and lifelong lover of fantasy living in Wichita, Kansas. In her spare time, she co-hosts the Writing Craft Podcast and its writing. She can also be found watching cooking shows with her husband, feeding her nail polish addiction, or catering to the whims of a rather demanding tuxedo cat. Her book, The Longest Autumn, is due out in January 2024. Welcome, Amy. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. I really am excited to talk to you. You put an animal in your bio, so I have to ask, tell me everything you know about this rather demanding tuxedo cat of yours. Oh, well, she shut out of the room because she is very, very vocal. Uh, I'm hoping we don't hear distant meowing at some point, um, but hopefully she'll be uh, entertained by the rest of the family outside. Um, she is... She's extremely cuddly and very sweet, but she will make sure that you you are the one who caters to her whims. Um, when she wants a lap, she will scream until she gets a lap. That sounds like every cat I've ever known oh. in one way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My dog is a whole, you know, different kind of, of animal. She doesn't necessarily want to be catered to all the time. But she's absolutely very pushy about like when she needs something, she's just gonna get up in your face and just lock eyes <laughs> and tell you, no, it's time for this thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fun. That's... I love animals. So yeah, that's that's pets. <laughs> yes. Um, so the longest autumn is a, a fantasy novel that you've written that's coming out in January. Mm -hmm. Um, before we dive into a discussion about this book and some of the ways that uh, you have kind of crafted it, I wanted to hear from you just a, a brief pitch. What is The Longest Autumn for those who haven't heard of it? Um, yes, it, uh, it takes place in a world where the seasons are personified as gods that enter the human world for the duration of their season and then go back to the godly realm. Um, our main character, Tirna, is the Herald of Autumn. So it is her job to bring Autumn into the world and escort him back out at the end of the season. Uh, but this year, after they pass through the enchanted mirror that acts as a portal, it shatters and she is accused of sabotage and loses her title because of this. And so she has to try to find who broke it so that they can A, fix it <laughs> and end the eternal Autumn and B, so she can get her job back because it's a very prestigious job. And she kind of ties her identity to it a little bit. Um, along the way, she finds different allies, different kind of enemies, some people that she doesn't know she can trust. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. <laughs> yeah, this book is really kind of twisty in a way. And I, I don't mean that in that it, it doesn't have like a ton of like action sequences or like punchy, punchy sword fighting. Uh, but a lot happens in this book. It's very <laughs> emotionally grounded in Tierna's experience. And I I really love that in a fantasy novel. Um, we were talking just a little bit before recording about kind of what this book falls into, what umbrella of fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, and you described it as literary fantasy. I wanted to mm -hmm. pick the brain a little bit about what is literary fantasy and how do we distinguish it from other uh, 
other subgenres of fantasy or other tropes in fantasy? Mm -hmm. um, I think you kind of think about it in the way you think of literary novels. A lot of literary novels are more character focused. Um, kind of the point of the novel is the character arc a lot of times. So I think literary fantasy kind of does that, but also part of it is in the prose and the way the prose is written, but also kind of that it's, it's view on the world is a little more trying to say something, <laughs> whatever that thing may be. Uh, but I do think the core of it is that it's this character focus versus a plot focus, which a lot of fantasy has. I love plot, <laughs> but um, it's just kind of a little bit more leaning into that arc. I love character focused stories because I think that they open up a door to understanding more of kind of our human humanness. If, if <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, I mean, so much of what I turn to art for is to try to explore the way that I think our human lives kind of interact with the rest of the world around us. I want to know more about what makes us us and mm -hmm. about what that implies about the relationships that we have with each other or the relationships we have with our environment. That's what speculative fiction does so well for me as opposed to other genres is like it has this way of kind of throwing human people or human characters into completely different circumstances and then still trying to explore like what is the human element <laughs> who are the human people how do humans react to these differing circumstances and in what way then can we extrapolate what we must be like as people living in a contemporary world mm -hmm. i do think um yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, but I do think that, yeah, putting people into these other worlds, these other situations can sometimes kind of highlight what is the same about these characters because the world is different. Mm -hmm. um, I do think I've seen a lot more literary sci-fi than I have fantasy, and I think fantasy is kind of starting to enter that realm a little bit more, um, whereas kind of literary sci-fi has always been a thing. You have things like uh, Emily St. John Mandel and stuff like that um that kind of interrogate these things and now we're kind of starting to explore that more in fantasy recently why do you think that trend is i'm going to pick your brain as someone who loves fantasy um mm -hmm. because i have read quite a bit of fantasy but it's not necessarily the uh genre that i think i read the most um mm -hmm. so i'm a little bit less versed in kind of where the trends are in fantasy right mm -hmm. now there's still a lot of high fantasy that's selling really well. Um, obviously, you know, you've got Sanderson, you've got your Joe Abercrombies. So they, there is still, it's not the whole genre moving. It's more of an expansion. And I think it is a lot of the people who grew up on the classic fantasy who are like, well, what else can I do with this? <laughs> and kind of just playing around a little bit. And that was kind of an area where it has, it hasn't been going a lot. They have existed but I think it's starting to build up a little more. And I think it's just one of those things that kind of slowly as, you know, we kind of went through different trends and I think it's just kind of one that evolved out of some of the other trends that have occurred in fantasy over recent years. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we, we are seeing a lot of change in 
at least what I see when, you know, as a casual fantasy reader, when I go into a bookstore, um, I peruse science fiction and fantasy, I peruse horror, I peruse, you know, new releases. And I see a lot more of this character focused or character driven fantasy, especially in romantic. I feel like romantic mm-hmm. is just blowing up right now. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and that's very character focused. I think the romanticy is actually, this is going to sound a little weird, but I think it actually comes out of the YA boom uh, about 10 years ago or so, Mm. uh, because those were very, usually very romance focused. Um, they usually had a lot of, you know, love triangles, that kind of thing in them, because that's just kind of part of that teen experience of everything being high drama and that first romance being like the most important, intense thing you've ever experienced. And then a lot of those readers are kind of aging out of YA. And so they're looking for something that kind of has a little bit of those vibes, but in a more adult way that experiences more adult themes, um, older characters and that kind of thing. So I think that's actually where the romanticity is coming from. That's that's really fascinating to me. And I think you're right. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think I stopped reading a lot of YA specifically because I just, you know, I feel like you get into a season of your life where it's like, how much is this really edifying me anymore? <laughs> and, and and this is not to cast aspersions on anyone who loves YA or YA mm-hmm. fantasy. Um, but I found that it was just kind of diminishing, <laughs> diminishing returns for me. Um, as I was like, I don't, I don't feel this way about young love anymore. <laughs> yeah. As you get older, your tastes change. Because your life yeah. experience changes and your view on the world changes. And so, um, yeah, I have friends that are you know, my age that still enjoy YA. Um, it's still, a, there's still some amazing books coming out in YA. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just a genre that my personal tastes have kind of mostly leaned away from. Um, and I think that's kind of where, like I said, the romantic readers are kind of coming from as well. Yeah. But there is some romance in your book. And I, I wanted to kind of open up the floor a little bit to hear about some of, of your inspirations for writing, um, you know, and in, including some of the romance in this book, because you also write romance um, that you've published under a, a pen name, mm-hmm. uh, Avery Ames. So, mm-hmm. you know, what what is some of your attraction to writing romance um, and what are some of the romantic kind of tropes and ideas that you wanted to explore in the longest autumn? Um, I do. I do love romance. Um, as you said, I, I do also write fantasy romance um, on the side. Um, that's actually where I got started. And so I love it because one of the things I just love exploring in all forms is the connection between characters. So yeah. I love exploring, you know, messy friendships. I love exploring, you know, essentially coworkers or colleagues that you don't quite get along with, but you're on the same, you know, you have the same goals, that kind of thing. I just love exploring what connects and what disconnects people. And a lot of times romance can be the way to like do that in the most intense way possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's also why I included it in this book is because it is, you know, a part, uh, Tierna is romantic, so she experiences romance. And so that's something that is important to her in that it's important to her character journey in this book um and her realizing how her connections and romances define her and don't define her yeah it, uh, i i, I want to talk so much about 
certain parts of this book, but I also don't <laughs> want to spoiler it or spoil it for those who are like really anticipating the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really had feelings though about <laughs> Irda and and the relationships that she forms because mm-hmm. there is such a there is such a messiness, you know, even in mm-hmm. our lives of the relationships that we keep and how those relationships evolve. Um, and I I love fiction that really wants to kind of dive into the verisimilitude of mm-hmm. of that messiness of relationships, you know, of how we feel about the people that we connect to and and you know, kind of build our identity around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I like yeah, I like exploring just yeah, the complicated messiness of when relationships can sometimes they can be a little toxic. Even, you know, even friendships can be a little toxic. Um, the way that people can come at it from different perspectives, how everybody has like their own I want to say ulterior motives, but that sounds a little over dramatic sometimes, but like people will come into a friendship or a relationship and kind of expect different things and that affects how it comes out it affects the arguments it affects everything and um, I wanted to explore that with this and without going too spoilery I do want to say one of the inspirations for one of the relationships she has was it was really popular for a while to have like villain romances Uh um like like the Star Wars Kylo Ren Rey kind of thing and I was just like personally frustrated with how those came out because there's such a huge power imbalance and for me that's not the thing i get why people would want to explore this in fiction because it is kind of a safe place to to look at these kinds of things but for me it wasn't my cup of tea so i was like how could i do a villain romance where they're more where there's still respect there and there's a little bit less of a power imbalance and that kind of thing and that turned into like a huge fun complicated mess to explore (laughs) Oh man, I I think you're hitting on some of the things that I love about it. Um, because I make no mistake, the moment I started reading this particular romance that we're talking about in the book, I was like, oh, this is this is this is wrong. <laughs> Girl, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but but that gave so much power, I think, to the other ideas that the book is really playing with, which is that idea of kind of identity making and mm-hmm. Um, and, and trying to kind of come into oneself. Um, mm-hmm. The book starts with Tierna kind of losing her job. <laughs> and, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much losing her job. And then, and then she's left to try to figure out, um, you know, how do I get this job back? Mm-hmm. And goes off on this book-long journey of, you know, trying to uncover what happened to her and, and who she is in the aftermath. And I think that this opens up a really great conversation about how it is that we build identity in the first place. I will say that this is partially probably the most autobiographical part of the book <laughs> um, because I was that straight A student. I was the, you know, the person that did National Honor Society, all the extracurriculars, got into college, got a good scholarship, and then got to college and everything fell apart. Um, I had some personal mental health issues that went untreated, got really bad, and I had to drop out to get those treated. And I didn't know who I was without being the straight A student. And so that was kind of Tierna's parallel here. Um, 
And that's part of the journey I wanted to explore because it is, you do tie your identity sometimes to these things that that require external validation and you you tie yourself so deeply into those that kind of pulling yourself away from some of those and figuring out who you are without that thing is a huge life lesson. Uh, yes. <laughs> Everything you're saying is like deeply resonating over here. <laughs> having, having my own flashbacks. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I mean, it, but it's a, in a good way. You know, I think you're mm. totally right. Maybe this is a generational thing, and and I'm reading through the lens of being a, a millennial. Um, mm -hmm. It it feels like, at least for millennials, and maybe for Gen Zers as well, that there is this expectation that you have to be the best at everything, or else you can't really compete. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, who you are or what you do is a very important status symbol that we've been taught from older generations, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not aspiring to climb the ladder, you know, if you're not working hard to be the best at everything, then you really aren't fulfilling your social function, right? Like you're letting mm -hmm. everyone down. I know that there are kids out there who have parents who put that pressure on. But I think mm -hmm. it's much more than just parents. I mean, what are some of your thoughts about some of this kind of generational anxiety <laughs> around that you know, kind of performative identity making? Mm -hmm. And I do think uh, a lot of it is peer pressure and kind of, like you said, kind of just a generational thing. Um, my guess is it probably somehow seeped into our brains from various media uh, because I had parents that were pretty chill about it. <laughs> they were kind of like, you can do whatever you want. But they did, you did learn that like doing better got you praise. Mm -hmm. And so you start to kind of like internalize that. Um, and I just think that learning all of that just kind of like melds in our brain. But there is also an element of, you know, like you said, kind of corporate culture from older older generations um without naming it i used to work for a pretty large pretty well-known company and one of their tenets was you were always supposed to be working your way up the ladder you were supposed to want to move into a managerial position and i was like i am bad at managing people i am very good at my job what i do i do graphic design i do kind of this like marketing stuff and it was looked down upon to just want to do the best at your job and not want to move into a higher job. And I'm like, but, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we really just as a, a, a society, I think we've lost view of that notion of just like, just living. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. just, yeah. Just a normal person having, a, a, you know, kind of, a philosophy of just enjoying your life, you know, yeah. even enjoyment now, I think has to be performative um, with the way that social media works. You think about mm -hmm. Instagram, for example, and, and does Instagram even work if people aren't taking selfies of themselves on vacation? <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually talked about this with friends about how 
you know, sometimes there are things where I just want to enjoy them myself, but then there's a part of you that's like, but this is content. And <laughs> you have to be like, you know, I just want to like enjoy this book, but it's like, no, I got to take a picture of the book and tell everybody that I'm enjoying it. And um, yeah, like I said, I think it all kind of comes down to that like external validation that that just, I mean, I think most people crave to some extent, but I do think you're correct that it is extremely prominent in millennials because I am also a millennial. Um, I'm not sure 100% where that comes from, but yeah, I think it is, it is very prevalent. <laughs> I also recognize the irony of having this conversation on a podcast that yes. ostensibly exists to do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely, as a podcaster, I feel like what I want most is to have interesting conversations about mm -hmm. art and, and the way that it reflects on human life. That is the reason why I seek out authors to talk to them because mm -hmm. I know that if you're a creative in some sense, you have skin in this game, right? Yeah. And like you think about the things that you're saying through your art and, and it's what makes literature beautiful. Um, but there, mm -hmm. there's also that pressure too of, of like, I gotta, I gotta make a big splash and people need to, you know, listen and they need to participate and they need to share and say, oh, this was so great. They need to buy your book. <laughs> And, and it feels like there's a lot of pressure there too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, part of it is, I mean, I wouldn't have tried to get published if I didn't want to like connect with people. Cause that's the reason I write is I want to connect with other people through writing. I want to write a thing that makes them feel a thing that makes people feel seen. Um, and I just, that's how I like to, to reach other people and feel this kind of rapport between other, you know, readers. Mm. And so I mean, that is why I write. So in order to get it out to people, you do have to kind of do all this stuff because otherwise, how are they going to find it? <laughs> oh, true. Absolutely. And I mean to cast no aspersions on yeah. any, any podcaster. And I do want to, I want to talk about your podcast, but I, I book talk first. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, I mean, you're totally right. It's, it's like, it's just kind of the weird nature of the beast of, yeah. And again, it, it gets it gets messy because so much of of what you do, right? So much of the effort that you put into a thing it gets wrapped up in identity making to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you start thinking about who you are and is who you are defined by what you do. That's a very difficult thing to maneuver, I, not just for millennials, I think for anybody. Yeah. I mean, when you go to like some sort of function where you don't know people, one of the first things people ask is, what do you do? It's like, what's your name? What do you do? So it's just a cultural thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and how you answer too, uh, I don't know. It's like, how, how do they receive that? Why ask the question? Mm -hmm. What are you categorizing? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just people trying to find something to talk about, but it is interesting that that's pretty high up on the list yeah I, i'm not to get too existential i'm like <laughs> i feel myself slipping out into this very ethereal place <laughs> you talk about connecting through writing to people and mm -hmm. representing people so that they feel seen and i think that's 
a really beautiful way to think about creating art. And you do have some representation in this book that I find mm -hmm. to be really compelling. Um, one of those representations is chronic illness and mm -hmm. this um, chronic, uh, maybe not very visible disability. Um, mm -hmm. So what was kind of the impulse there for you? Uh, what were some of the decisions that you made to depict unseen disability um, for your main character? Mm -hmm. um, I will admit it completely started off selfishly at first because um, I started writing this book in 2019 around summer, early summer. And then in fall of 2019, I started getting really bad chronic headaches. And we went through everything. We went through MRIs. We went through multiple migraine medications. We could not figure out what it was. And they would they would hit and then they would go away, sometimes for half an hour, sometimes for a day. And then they would hit again. And it was just completely random. Some were worse than others. Couldn't find medicine that worked. And I was trying to go through my day job. I was trying to write this book. And there were times where I would just be sitting like lying down and just crying because the pain was so bad and I couldn't do anything and I was so frustrated that I couldn't do anything. And then there were other times I was at work and like it was bad enough that it made work hard, but I could still technically do it. And that's kind of a difficult place to be in because like you said, no one sees it, but you're still kind of struggling. And so I put these into the book because then it made me feel better see somebody else going through this and still like kind of overcoming her obstacles even though I made her up um but also it, it kind of helped because every time I had a headache I'm like this is research this has some productivity to it, and it was, it's kind of a sad way to think about it but it gave me like a little silver lining and um, we eventually figured out what it was it's a really obscure type of headache um I didn't give Tierna all the exact same symptoms but there is a part where she talks about her eye watering and her like nose getting congested because those are my first signs. And we finally found a medicine. And if I take it right then, I can usually like cut it down to like a mild pain. Um, yeah. So I've luckily found treatment, but there was a period of time for months where I was just dealing with this. And so I wanted to show what it was like in, in Tierna. Well, this brings up a lot about just at how I think our culture thinks about illness and wellness, um, because I, I don't think that we respect wellness very much in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't want to get on a tangent to talk about, <laughs> you know, health insurance systems or anything like that, which I have problems yeah. with. But I think that you know, we, we, we have a, a strange obsession with labor and productivity. Um, we do, you know, you were even talking about the silver lining of having these ethics being, yep. right. Like how can I make this into to something productive, mm -hmm. which is kind of perverse. It really is. And yeah, there's that, like, if I, you know, for example, if I called in sick to work, it's like, well, will they think I'm slacking off? Will they think I'm like not a good worker? Will they think I'm not a team player? Uh, so you go and you you just live through it while you're trying to work because this productivity is so valued. Yeah, and and not only that, it it's like 
we just don't have a respect for anybody who like whether you're healthy or not you know mm -hmm. sometimes you just you don't need to work <laughs> like yeah I, I know that's sacrilege but i think that we put so much emphasis on having to work every moment of our lives um i work two jobs and i do this podcast because i'm just like i can never let go of that feeling that i'm not mm -hmm. being productive with my free time um, yeah. But that's complicated all the more when when we are talking about real disability with people mm -hmm. that is so difficult to talk about because if it's not visible, people just don't have the empathy to to see you in your pain and allow you that human vulnerability for that time. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my thing. It was like, well, will people think I'm faking it? Is kind of the thing because it's like if like you said if it's invisible and you can't see it it's like do people think you're just lazy or that you're trying to get out of work or something like that and that's that's a huge pressure for people who have invisible illnesses and you know the things the things that you like said you can't see it and because our society is so based on this like well if you can work you should work and you look like you can work so why can't you? You know, what What are some of your hopes for your representation in this book? Mm -hmm. um, without getting too spoilery, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid that. Um, one of the things that I see in a lot of the representations of these things are, like, the ability to just overcome it by powering through mm. and... In like, you know, if, if you're just, if you, if you outthink it, if you, you know, you can willpower it away. Um, and I, I may, I wanted to show that my character does that to her detriment, that that's not the way she should, should be handling it, even if that's the way she initially wants to handle it. Um, because you do see a lot of that in fiction that it's just like, you can almost get better just by making it through or you or it's just like well you should suck it up and deal with it and power through it anyway because that's what you know strong-willed people would do and yeah i wanted to show to kind of subtly through subtext oh that that's really not good <laughs> mm. and that we live in a society that doesn't let us take care of it but ideally you should be able to to take care of yourself and there should be a society that makes accommodations for these things even though we don't really have one <laughs> that's the ultimate fantasy right there right yeah, <laughs> yeah. escapist literature <laughs> yeah. greater than i don't know a night society where mm -hmm. you're treated fairly there's also some really great representation in this book about anxiety and again we come back mm -hmm. to that sense of self-worth and self-value you know what what were some of the inspirations for you to to talk about this specific kind of anxiety um as tierna experiences it through the book mm -hmm. i think um again this is a very millennial thing um i think that one actually kind of just came about by accident <laughs> Um, it just kind of became, you know, a part of her character as I, you know, started to develop her motivations and her goals and how she, she was 
how she was raised into these goals and that you know like we like we had talked about she's hung so much on it that losing it or the potential of losing it for a long period of time would just cause this anxiety in her because that's that's her personality sometimes my characters kind of just build their own personality as I write and I think that was something that just kind of like fell in <laughs> but I love that I feel like that's the um that's like what gives it artistic merit right like the the fact that this character kind of develops and then it seems like oh well of of course <laughs> she has it <laughs> right um because that, that's kind of the the circumstances of uh the world you know kind of built around her what more convincing world building than you know could you do that your characters feel authentically affected you know by mm -hmm. the decisions kind of made around them so you have a podcast that's called and it's writing and yes. i i really wanted to talk about the genesis of this podcast what you do on it and why i think it has so much value so what is and it's writing and how did it come about for you um, it is a writing craft podcast. Um, sometimes we just have more standard episodes where we talk about kind of writing topics, craft related topics, but the genesis of it was going back through, um, I guess I should first give a little bit of background that I've been writing since high school, um, fairly prolifically, not always well. And so the genesis <laughs> was to go back to my very old work. And kind of, you know, kind of laugh at it a little bit because some of it's terrible, you know, 14-year-old vampire fan fiction. <laughs> um, and to kind of, you know, poke fun at it, but also to show through the lens of having so much more experience now how we would revise it. So we actually go through a snippet of my writing and go through and go, okay, here's where we're doing way too many dialogue tags. Here's where, you know, we're head hopping and kind of show some different writing craft like live, like how we would apply it. Um, because I thought that was kind of, I was kind of just talking about it with some friends, you know, about my old writing and how I would revise it now um, if I ever did go back. And it kind of just snowballed from there. One of my friends was like, I'd love to do this with you. And I'm like, good, because I need a co-host. <laughs> um, yeah, we just kind of went from there and I just I thought it was unique amongst the writing craft podcasts um, because it wasn't something I'd seen people do. And it's all work that I don't have any real emotional investment in. So I'm like, yeah, we can rip it apart. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I I I, I want to talk about how much value this podcast is, though, um, from from the perspective of, you know, someone who's trying to write a lot of the time when I talk to my students or I talk to other aspiring writers, there is this idea that you have to have some kind of inborn talent to write. Mm -hmm. And I get really frustrated with people who talk themselves out of writing instead of talking themselves mm -hmm. into it. Because I think that to a certain extent, the only quote unquote talent that you really need for writing is just having an idea and, and creativity. I think that creativity can't necessarily be faked, but I do think that it could be trained. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
more than anything, a lot of writing that what we think of as writing, the, the craft of writing is a skill. And that's not talent. That's something that you can work on and work through. And so on, and it's writing, the, the thing that you do that is so wonderful is you actually take your own work, you act vulnerably to model for your readers the process of dissecting what's there, what's on the page, what you put down, and how to work through and make decisions on how to, to, to train yourself to get better. And yeah. This is so <laughs> incredibly valuable. <laughs> I've never seen anyone else do it the way that you do it, except like perhaps in a classroom or something. And even then, I don't see many professors just taking an example and saying, all right, as a group, we're going to try to, to break this down into its component elements, figure out what's not working about it and shape it up you know, very much show you the craft that we're trying to train. Mm -hmm. And I also think it helps just to see that it doesn't all start out good. <laughs> because I think that's, for example, I do NaNoWriMo. And the thing I see most often with people who quit partway through NaNoWriMo is that they're upset that it's bad or they're worried that it's bad. And they're like, this doesn't read like books that I've read. And I'm like, none of them do at first. <laughs> And so this kind of shows that, yeah, it starts off, you know, rough. They're, they're rough drafts for a reason. Um, so hopefully that gives people like hope that, yes, you can make a very, very rough draft and then, yeah, build up the craft, build up the skills. Um, one of my analogies is always like you'd never expect to give somebody like a pile of lumber and for them to build like a beautiful desk the first time they tried it. Um, and writing is the same way. Writing is... We, we tend to like assume that because it is something, it's a basic skill that we kind of use, you know, you write emails, you, you know, you speak verbally, you read books, that you should be able to just do that. Um, but no, it's just like any other skill. You just, you learn as you go, you start off bad and you get better. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really, it really is inspiring too, um, to, to pick up your book. Um, the longest autumn, which ha it has gorgeous prose. <laughs> I was struck by just how much I loved, um, especially the first couple of chapters, which I think are the most evocative of mm -hmm. uh, mood and and a description of of place. Um, but you incorporate a lot of sensory language uh, throughout the the whole of the book that just adds this beautiful layer to the story and i think it's wonderful to see this incredibly polished book and also go back in your <laughs> high school fiction and and really see the growth you know to see the the way that you've come into this particular form of mastery as you continue to develop as a writer well thank you yeah do you ever feel like <laughs> Like you're too vulnerable on your show? Not really, because um, like I said, it's it's stuff that's older. If it was like the first draft of The Longest Autumn, I might feel more vulnerable uh, because that's something that I have more emotional investment in. Um, something that's, you know, 25 years old. I'm just like, well, eh, that was that was back then. 
Um, so a little less. Um, and I do, I just, I hope that it does help people to see. It took me, I have friends that have just, like, they started writing three years ago and they are just brilliant now. And I am a slow learner. So it took me 25 years of writing to get to a point where I felt confident enough to try to get published. So, it, yeah, everybody goes at their own pace, but I did want to show that you you can grow. I absolutely love it. If you had any one piece of non-prescriptive advice for, you know, writers who are maybe on the fence about whether or not they want to write or writers who feel like they're just kind of stuck, um, what would you tell, you know, kind of those writers? Um, for people who are stuck by always, I always say, like, take a break and refill the well. Um, which is a little prescriptive, but like if you're stuck, it's usually because you're, you're laser focused on it and you're focused on the fact that you're stuck. And every time I've like hit a point where I'm like, this is bad. I don't want to do it. Or that I'm just like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how this plot works or I'm feeling down. I, I tell myself I'm not allowed to write. And this may just be like an ADHD thing. Um, I tell myself I'm not allowed to write on it for X amount of time for like a week. And then my brain gets mad about it and it comes up with all the ideas and it wants to write because it's like, you don't tell me what to do. And so <laughs> that's kind of a trick. It may or may not work for you. Um, but for people who are afraid to start, uh, the big thing is like nobody has to see it except you until you are ready. So just, you know, do it in secret. And you don't even have to tell anybody you're doing it, period. Just, you know, keep it as like your own thing. And then there's no pressure until you until you are ready for there to be other people experiencing this. So don't be afraid because, yeah, it can be your little secret. <laughs> and if you need craft tips, uh, go listen to or watch And It's Writing. I, I, I love the show it, since meeting you in October, <laughs> I, I've downloaded just a, a bunch of episodes I listened to them in my car and I'm like this is really just brilliant um to I, I don't know to, to to kind of open up a gate to writing you know to, mm -hmm. to like open the door and let people in and 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 to let them in specifically to seeing the process to modeling mm -hmm. the process in a, a way that feels very low stakes to them um it's it's a brilliant show amy like it's thank you so I, I will say you did ask when if i feel vulnerable and i realized the ones where i feel most vulnerable are our little episodes where we talk about like our writing journey where we talk about our insecurities and imposter syndrome and you know dealing with bad beta reads and stuff like that is actually when i feel more vulnerable because that's when you're like we don't all have this figured out <laughs> but the fact that you act as as a model for that journey is just so i i can't think of anything more valuable you know may, maybe it's because there's like some parasocial element there where it's like you know you you're getting to know someone through the work that they do but i i think it's it's more than that it's like an understanding of the process of growth which is the messiest process of, uh -huh. of trying to do anything you know you, you start as a beginner and 
I think that there is a perception in some communities that like, if you come in as a beginner, they're just going to fucking tear you apart because that's what they do. Right. It's like mm-hmm. they establish a pecking order through their seniority. But, but what you've done is instead of beating down, you know, at these new writers, you've, you've offered them a hand forward and saying like, mm-hmm. this is what I'm doing. I've, been growing and you can grow too you know like you can be bad at a thing and then be good at a thing (laughs) that's that's the whole point of effort and labor and and the process of learning yeah and that's that's it it's just like in anybody i really do believe anybody can become a writer um some people are going to have a little bit more of a natural aptitude and learn faster some people are going to learn slower like me Uh, (laughs) but everybody can and that's one of the big things i want to do is be like if you want to do this you can do it it's not something that requires a lot of you know specialized equipment or you know physical training or anything and i mean some people are going to have some more limitations especially with like their time depending on their jobs their families and stuff um some people are going to have limitations because of various disabilities um those kinds of things but you you will get there if you want to. I believe in that too. Um, and I thank you for for being the resource that you are, you know, to, to modeling that. It's super important. Thank you. So the last autumn comes, or the, not the last autumn. <laughs> the longest autumn comes out January, 2024. Where can people find more of you online as they want to follow your projects um well my my main website is averyames.com um i made it when i had my pen name (laughs) so it's a-v-e-r-y-a-m-e-s.com um i'm most active now on instagram which is avery ames author um i'm also under on blue sky under the same name but i'm not quite as active over there i have I technically have a Twitter slash X account, but it is updates only, and I don't really visit it very much for reasons. <laughs> so, yeah, the the best place to find me is going to be Instagram right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, just, I mean, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been truly delightful. Oh, thank you. I've had fun. I'm glad.